listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. On this episode of PTCE Pharmacy Connect, we explore the advances in the treatment of immune thrombocytopenia, also referred to as ITP. We'll be reviewing strategies for optimizing clinical and patient outcomes of ITP. ITP is a complex blood disorder where the number of platelets is significantly reduced because of an immune reaction against one's own platelets. ITP increases the likelihood of bleeding, highlighting the important role of the pharmacist in laboratory monitoring, adherence counseling, facilitating continuity of care and individualizing treatment plans to improve health-related quality of life. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. Welcome back to the Pharmacy Connect Podcast. Great to be back. Goodness gracious, this year has gone fast, but what's interesting is how many pharmacists that we have reached through this podcast and the comments that we're getting through social media on LinkedIn. Um, We appreciate you. Thank you so much for your feedback and making these great learning pieces and segment of your continuing education. A big shout out to the Pharmacy Connect PTCE uh, team. You've done an amazing job putting these together. We have a guest, uh, a host coming back to the Pharmacy Podcast, the PTCE Pharmacy uh, Podcast Connect. And it's exciting for me to reintroduce Dr. Anthony Parasinati. He is a clinical pharmacist, a specialist in hematology in the Department of Pharmacy at the University of Michigan, Michigan Medicine, who will lead an incredible discussion today on ITP, a complex disorder that can result in bleeding events ranging from mild to life-threatening. Dr. Anthony, welcome back. Hey, thank you so much for having me back. It's such an honor and a pleasure to be here. So, um, but today, you know, I'm not going to be the star of the show today. Uh, today, we've got Dr. Lisa Charneski, who is an assistant dean for academic affairs and an associate professor of clinical pharmacy at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy at St. Joseph's University. Uh, and she's going to help provide us with a brief overview of immune thrombocytopenia purpura, which from here on out, we're going to, for simplicity's sake, sake, uh, call this ITP. Uh, And she's also going to highlight the current treatment strategies and advancements for the management of ITP. Uh, The learning objectives for this podcast are, uh, number one, to outline current guideline recommendations and strategies pharmacists can implement for the management of ITP, and also to recall the efficacy and safety of emerging agents for the treatment of ITP. Uh, Dr. Charnowski, very welcome uh, to be here. So uh, let's just get off on the right foot here and give me a a, a nice thousand foot view of what exactly is ITP and how do patients commonly present? Well, thank you for that introduction, Anthony. I really appreciate it. Um, So ITP, um, just a general thousand foot view on the background. So it's an autoimmune disorder and it's a disorder where platelets are destroyed. 
This disease has been called by other terms. I think I've heard a few thrown around already. And um, Anthony and myself are probably of the same age range because of the word purpura being thrown around. But um, it's typically referred to as immune thrombocytopenia now, but it has been also called by immune thrombocytopenia purpura, idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura. And that term purpura, it really refers to a wide variety of, of skin and mucotaneous lesions um, with an official definition as extravasation of red blood cells into the skin or mucous membranes. Typically, patients with ITP um, present with either ecchymosis, which is just kind of a fancy word for bruise, uh, or petechiae, which is also a bruise, but just a tiny one, so one that's less than four millimeters. Um, many patients actually have no visible symptoms at all, and they're really just diagnosed when thrombocytopenia is picked up incidentally on a routine CBC. And a much smaller number of patients, um, about 5% or even less, actually present with severe bleeding as their initial presentation. The main characteristic really for most patients, though, is an isolated thrombocytopenia. So in ITP, this means a platelet count of less than 100,000 per cubic millimeter. Um, and that's the units I'm going to stick with throughout. And are there any particular risk factors for developing ITP? Are there any patients that are predisposed to developing ITP? So essentially, you know, who gets ITP and, and why do they get ITP? Sure. Um, well, um, you know, it's a relatively rare disease. I don't know that it's uh, easy to predict who gets it, but we do know that um, it can be primary or secondary. In general, we, we see this in about 1.9 to 6.4 uh, per 100,000 children. And in adults, uh, three point, about 3.3 per 100,000 adults. Um, in adults, we see two peaks. Kind of looks a little bit like other autoimmune diseases in that way. Um, the first peak is uh, 20 to 38 years old. Um, and this group seems to be more female. And then the second peak occurs after the age of 60, where we see males and females are more equal in distribution. I mentioned you can have secondary causes, um, and those include um, having other lymphoproliferative disorders like Hodgkin's or CML, uh, immunodeficiency syndrome, both genetic and autoimmune types, certain infections, so HIV, HBV, HCV, uh, CMV, all the Vs, right? Uh, Epstein-Barr virus and Helicobacter pylori have all been associated with this. And then other autoimmune diseases, so patients who have lupus or RA, uh, antiphospholipid syndrome, and Evans disease are all um, possible secondary um, causes here. And then um, finally, medications. So um, obviously an important area for pharmacists here, uh, commonly prescribed or used medications include pain relievers like acetaminophen, ibuprofen, naproxen, CNS drugs like diazepam, lorazepam, haloperidol, mirtazapine, carbamazepine, and phenytoin. Some cardiovascular agents, including amiodarone, amlodipine, eptivibaptide, furosemide, and heparin. Some antibiotics, um, which is probably not surprising, like ampicillin and penicillin, piperacillin, ceftriaxone, ciprofloxacin, bactrim, and vancomycin. And then finally, rosaglitazone, which doesn't really neatly fit into any of those categories that I mentioned. 
Um, important to mention, this is not a complete list, just some of them that are, are most common. So pharmacists should really check um, if a patient has a new medication that has been started recently and now uh, presents with thrombocytopenia. And then you mentioned the why, Anthony, right? Um, and so, you know, I mentioned it's not really fully understood, but we do know that approximately 50% have detectable antiplatelet antibodies. Um, and what these antibodies do is they promote the premature destruction of platelets. Um, platelets live, typically only live about seven to 10 days, but they are being destroyed faster than that by the spleen and the liver. Uh, through the induction of the complement system. Uh, we also know that megakaryocytes, um, their function seems to be inhibited, resulting in a decreased production of new platelets. And then T cell abnormalities have been identified in both the T helper cells and the CD8 cytotoxic seized T cells. And uh, molecular mimicry. So I mentioned all those Vs before, all those viruses and the Helicobacter. So there appears to be some, some role of molecular mimicry involved since we have all those infections also um, being associated with it. And then finally, I think it's worth noting that approximately 70% of adult patients will actually go on to have chronic ITP with the rest experiencing a spontaneous remission. And, you know, one of the challenges that I'm noticing here is you, you're kind of rattling off a multitude of reasons or risk factors to develop ITP is a lot of these things can also just cause thrombocytopenia by themselves and not necessarily that whole entire pathophysiology of ITP. And I think, you know, a lot of people that are on heme consult services know that the number one consult uh, for, you know, our benign hematologist is for thrombocytopenia. And there's a multitude of reasons why a patient can become thrombocytopenic. So I think, you know, the big question that I have is, how is ITP diagnosed? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one that doesn't have a super straightforward answer. So it is a diagnosis of exclusion, which means we really have to do our homework. Um, we have to get a detailed patient history, including physical exam, blood counts, peripheral blood films to exclude other hematologic conditions, many of which you probably see very often. Role of the pharmacist would be, as I mentioned um, a little bit ago, to take a detailed medication history to um, exclude drug-induced causes. And then secondary ITP and other causes like liver disease and bone marrow disorders and other inherited disorders also need to be ruled out. Testing for infections, um, like I mentioned earlier, is important. Um, there's actually some evidence um, that in, in certain geographic areas that, that treating H. pylori might actually result in improvement of, of patients with thrombocytopenia. So that's kind of interesting. And then we need baseline immunoglobulin levels, um, including IgG, IgA, and IgM, because if they are across the board low, it actually may indicate that somebody has um, common variable immunodeficiency or CVID, which is a different disease altogether instead of ITP. And then <clears throat> I mentioned before that 50% of, of patients have these antiplatelet antibodies. Um, even though that's true, they're not routinely recommended to be tested, um, except when somebody might be very complicated. It could actually possibly send you in the right direction if you if you can't easily make the diagnosis. And then finally, some other things to think about. Um, if somebody has a history of thrombosis or other symptoms associated with antiphospholipid syndrome like fetal loss, um, that, that's something worth measuring, including other anti, um, coagulation testing. 
And then anti-nuclear antibody or ANA testing um, should be done, especially before removing the spleen. Um, I'm going to mention that a couple of times, right? You can't put the spleen back once it's removed, which is one of the treatments. Um, <laughs> and those patients, right, they, they, they might actually benefit from hydroxychloroquine, which is a common treatment that we use for rheumatoid, or, I'm sorry, for, um, for lupus. So what, one of the, the, the real reasons to use hydroxychloroquine these days. <laughs> absolutely, um, so like, absolutely. <laughs> uh, not to get into anything controversial here today, but, you know, so um, one of the things that you mentioned, so we don't have a clear way to really diagnose this disease, uh, at least nothing definitive. And so it, it's a diagnosis of ex exclusion. And, and also it's a pretty rare disease. So I imagine um, that the treatment of this disease is also going to be um, potentially challenging as well. And so a big question that I have is, do we have any guidance from the international community or in the United States with regards to treatment guidelines? Uh, and if we do have treatment guidelines, what do they recommend? How do they recommend to treat a newly diagnosed patient with ITP? Yeah. So believe it or not, there are actually two sets of guidelines. Um, before I get into those, um, you mentioned a newly diagnosed patient. So I think that's worth defining. So newly diagnosed is officially um, somebody who has had this diagnosis less than three months. There's also terms that are important. So persistent um, ITP is defined as three to 12 months and chronic is greater than 12 months. Um, so back to those guidelines. So there are two bodies that have published guidelines, uh, both most recently in 2019. One panel um, is experts from around the world, and they are the International Consensus Report. I'll, I'll now call those the ICR. And the last um, time they were, like I said, it was 2019, but before that they had been updated in 2010. The second set of guidelines is the American Society, Society of Hematology, and I'll now call those the um, ASH guidelines. And the last time that they had been published before 2019 was 2011. So who and when to treat is not always completely straightforward in either set of guidelines, but it's really driven by patient-specific factors, such as the duration of the disease, whether the uh, patient is an adult versus a child, whether there's active bleeding, the platelet count, and other risk factors for bleeding, um, with the overarching goal of really preventing the patient from bleeding. So let's talk about some specific recommendations um, for newly diagnosed adults. So newly diagnosed adults, the ASA, ASH guidelines, um, they identify a platelet count of less than 30,000 per cubic millimeter as being the sort of threshold for when a patient needs to be treated. Um, but they do also kind of say that if somebody has a high risk of bleeding, such as maybe an older age, greater than 60, or if they happen to be on other anticoagulants, then maybe you would want to treat if they had um, a higher platelet count. The ICR recommends a lower threshold. So they, um, they cite less than 20,000 per cubic millimeter, but they do recommend a goal of greater than 20 to 30,000 per cubic milli millimeter in anyone who might be symptomatic. So anyone who's showing any symptoms of bleeding. As far as children, children who are newly diagnosed, um, there's no specific platelet counts for them. Um, so if, as long as the child does not have moderate or severe bleeding, um, the recommendation for treatment by both sets of guidelines is, um, is actually um, low because the rate of bleeding seems to be low. 
Also, the rate of spontaneous remission, which we'll get into a little bit later, is much higher in this patient population versus the adults. Um, one thing to mention, and this is a problem across the board, right, that there's no real clear definition of like what really defines an adult versus what really defines a child. So some of those teenage patients may you know, fall into kind of the gray area between um, being an adult or being a child. Uh, in terms of first-line therapies for adult and children, um, really the, the magic uh, answer, unlike not unlike other autoimmune disease, is oral corticosteroids. And so the ASH recommends um, adults get a short course, which is defined as less than six weeks of prednisone, and then with a dosing range of 0.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram per day or dexamethasone at 40 milligrams per day for four days. There is some evidence that the dexamethasone may have a more rapid response, but long-term platelet counts and, and remission at six months doesn't seem to be any difference between whether you chose the prednisone or whether you chose the dexamethasone. As far as children, um, with non-life-threatening mucosal bleeding or just diminished quality of life, you may choose to treat with prednisone and they recommend doses of two to four milligram per kilogram per day with a maximum of 120 milligrams daily for five to seven days. And then uh, the prednisone is recommended um, over the dexamethasone in children. In terms of the ICR guidelines, um, they recommend for adults uh, prednisolone at one milligram per kilogram with a maximum dose of 80. Um, and then that should be given for two weeks, according to that set of guidelines, to a maximum of three weeks. Or the dexamethasone, again, same dosage as the ASH, which is the 40 milligrams per day for four days. Um, this set of guidelines does actually say that you may repeat the dexamethasone up to three times. And then in, in um, children, they stress that the treatment should be reserved for patients who actually have severe bleeding, either grade three or four. And that steroids alone um, are not endorsed in this patient population, but should really be used um, with IVIG or an anti-D immunoglobulin. So at this point, what I'm gathering is, uh, one, we've got a rare diagnosis um, that is um, has a lot of gray area in diagnosing, and then also there's quite a bit of gray area, even with regards to treatment. And so I think we rely upon experts like, you, like yourself uh, tremendously, and I'm sure the guidelines are based primarily off of expert opinion and not so much data-driven. And so you know, a question that I have for you is uh, regards to the steroid. So there seems to be a, a, a multiple different recommendations from the various guidelines. Um, so do you have a preference? Do you have a favorite steroid, prednisone, dex? And uh, with that, what dosing strategy do you personally use in your practice? Well, don't we all have a favorite steroid, right? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I practice in adult patients. So, um, you know, dexamethasone extrapolated from some asthma literature does maybe have some more tolerability in terms of vomiting as a side effect and maybe some better compliance. It's also a shorter course. So I think that's always nice. Um, I think also important to mention though, you know, if you, if you do have a pediatric population or an adult who can't take um, a pill, 
that the prednisolone, the liquid formulation, um, that prednisolone base really does taste pretty nasty. Um, it's very <laughs> bitter. So, you know, it's really that generic aura pred that you want to use, which is the sodium phosphate formulation, especially in children. Got it. Oh, I appreciate your expertise there. Um, so frontline therapy, steroids. Now, this is uh, in a patient that is not bleeding or with severe, severe thrombocytopenia or even, you know, a, uh, a patient that you don't need their platelets to come up immediately, right? Because there's no procedure that you need to do in the next day or, you know, a patient's not bleeding. So are there differences in how you would approach a patient where you urgently need to get their platelets up? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in those patients, we're really probably talking about IVIG. Um, it does have a, a, a role as combination therapy with IV corticosteroids as well. Um, although, you know, it is really important to point out that like none of these drugs should delay a platelet transfusion if somebody, you know, is bleeding or, you know, at, at risk of, of having to have a, an urgent surgery or something like that. Um, and then also the the anti-D immunoglobulin, um, there's really not evidence that that IVIG is not just as good or maybe even better at this time. So, you know, I think the guidelines kind of push us more in that direction. What about uh, rituximab? Yeah. That that drug is thrown around every once in a while. Does that act fast? Is is it something that you would do? Yeah, you know, I think this is a really interesting um interesting drug and at this particular time, sort of in the disease state. Um, I'm expecting we're going to see more research in this area because although there's limited data right now, it does seem that rituximab may enhance remission rates when used early in combination with corticosteroids for initial treatment. Um, I think the, the issues are is that we don't really have a, a great handle on um, optimal dosing and potentially the risk of, you know, short-term, long-term risk of, of using rituximab. Um, but we know that, you know, this medication is a monoclonal antibody um, it against CD20 and it depletes the peripheral B cells. Okay. So in this uh, scenario, patient that needs a, a rapid increase, um, rituximab might not be your go-to. Um, it, it potentially can enhance the durability, but not necessarily the rapidity at which uh, you can, you know, attain a remission in these patients. Right, right. And and I think we'll talk a little bit later about, you know, rituximab does, does come with, I think, some unique risk factors. So if you did have somebody who was potentially clinically unstable, it might not be a drug you want to reach for right away. That's a good point. And not to mention implications with uh, our COVID vaccines and other vaccines, you're completely depleting B cells, completely depleting, uh, depleting antibody um, response to our vaccine. So um, what other agents do we have? What about, um, I, th I think there was a recent New England Journal of Medicine manuscript uh, with mycophenolate mofetil. Yeah, it does seem to have some promising efficacy, um, but unfortunately, the, the quality of life data seems to be worse with that agent. We might see some more, you know, research in, in that area. Um, also, uh, a class of agents, which again, we're going to talk about in, in greater detail later, which is the thrombopoietin receptor agonist, the TPORAs. Um, while they don't modulate the immune system, there is some evidence that using them early might actually um, 
result in remission. And the idea of that being is that um, you actually get T regulatory cells, um, which then kind of balance the immune system naturally by this continuous exposure of the immune system to high level of platelet antigens. And those drugs work by actually stimulating platelet production. So thus far, we've talked about uh, a number of different agents to treat ITP. Uh, what should we expect from a response rate perspective in a patient, let's say just a, a, a general uh, newly diagnosed patient with ITP, you know, with, without, um, without a bleeding risk that uh, you just start on corticosteroids? What are the response rates look like and how durable are they? Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of patients initially respond to corticosteroids. Um, unfortunately, it's not usually sustained. Only about 20%, if we throw all patients together, have a long-term sustained remission. This really does vary with age. So um, children do a lot better than adults. Um, and younger children even do better than older children. So children who are less than one year, typically they have about 74% remission um, in that population. And the kids who are a little bit older, the one to six-year-olds, they're about 67%. And then our kids uh, 10 to 20, about 62%. Um, unfortunately, our adults, uh, the numbers aren't quite that high. The majority of adults will actually fall into the persistent, um, which I, again, that is the three to 12 months and the chronic greater than 12 months uh, classification of ITP. So it's probably best that we focus a little bit more on that group in terms of long-term treatment, because they're really the ones we're talking about in terms of kind of chronic management. Um, you know, it's it's tempting, right, with with uh, autoimmune disease to want to use corticosteroids, um, mm -hmm. but as we we know from other autoimmune diseases, um, long term corticosteroids are not great for patients, right? They have a ton of undesirable side effects. Um, so really, beyond a six week trial, the benefits for continued use of corticosteroids are small. And probably going to lead to things like, you know, high blood pressure and GI effects, irritation, ulcer, um, you know, negative effects on glucose and mood, myopathy, and, and potentially even osteoporosis. So I think ultimately, we really just need to focus on the, the main goal of all therapy, which is going to be a sustained increase in platelet count, minimizing adverse effects and, and remission, which um, can be defined as keeping those platelets greater than 30,000 per cubic millimeter uh, in the absence of needing to be on treatment. Um, there is some good news. Um, remission does seem to eventually occur in approximately 85% of all patients, even without a splenectomy after five years. Um, so, so that's good news. And then um, I think also, you know, we keep talking about splenectomy. So it, it's also important to mention that that wants to be delayed as long as possible, um, especially um, at least up to a year, uh, because we want to give someone time to to have that spontaneous remission because you can't put that spleen back once it's gone. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think that's so well said. And I, I can't remember the last time I've done splenectomy uh, these days for ITP, mainly because we we have promising agents. We have agents that, that do work. And like you said, up to 85% of patients eventually do go into remission. So I, I guess just to summarize acute uh, ITP, um, start with steroids. Dr. Cherneski likes dexamethasone. The zone. If a patient um, is bleeding, uh, you would do IVIG to get that rapid response. Uh, rituximab might help with uh, prolonging a remission, but uh, not really any advantage to adding it up front. Um, and then, 
you know, moving on to now a patient that has persistent or chronic. So we talked about acute ITP. Now let's talk about persistent or chronic ITP. What agents are involved uh, with the treatment of that? Yeah, so I, I mentioned a little bit earlier that we have these um, agents that are thrombopoietin receptor agonists or TPORAs. Um, they work, again, by um, actually stimulating platelet production. Uh, there's three of those agents. So there is uh, romiplostim, there's um, L-trombopag, and there is um, avatrombopag. These are going to be challenging my pronunciation the entire time. Uh, but all of those agents do have a strong body of evidence for the use of maintenance therapy and a pretty good response rate of approximately 65.7% at one month. Um, remember, they don't actually affect the immune system, but they just, you know, tell your body to make more platelets. The, um, the efficacy can persist for six to eight years um, and can allow patients to um, decrease uh, and discontinue other ITP therapies. So again, remember I, I had said, we don't want those corticosteroids on a long time. So that's one example. And all the agents should be discontinued if there are not a response after four weeks of therapy at maximum dose. So if somebody doesn't respond to them. I can talk a little bit more about that first agent I mentioned, which is the uh, romiplostum. Uh, so that medication has a pretty good efficacy rate. Um, usually after just one week, patients will see um, a response. It's dosed initially uh, one microgram per kilogram once weekly, and it's based on actual body weight. The doses then are adjusted by one microgram per kilogram per week based on the platelet count to reduce the risk of bleeding. And the medium dose that we've seen in trials to achieve results um, was two to three micrograms per kilogram. Uh, it has a maximum dose recommended at 10 microgram per kilogram. Uh, there are also recommendations. So once the patient responds and has some good platelet counts about how to taper that medication down. So if, if that you find yourself in that situation, I recommend checking those out. Um, some really important information for pharmacists. So this medication, um, the administration volume is tiny. So it's important to use an appropriately sized syringe. Um, must have graduations down to the uh, 0.01 milliliter. And no more than one dose should be pulled from a vial. So um, specific storage and stability information, um, should always check it while you're reconstituting, um, especially if it's for a pediatric patient. And then I think interesting, you know, some, some states allow pharmacists to administer medications beyond vaccination. So, you know, this might be a role for pharmacists in those areas. Uh, and there's some evidence for safe at-home administration, um, but obviously patients really will require some, some really good education from their pharmacist to make sure that they're doing that safely. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, at home administration. So, uh, it's also important to remind the audience, this agent is administered subcutaneously, um, which, you know, obviously isn't ideal or convenient. The nice thing about Romiplostim is, um, there's quite a bit of the ability for us to titrate up and down, uh, the dose. Um, but the downside obviously is it's not orally administered. Um, so it's poses a, a bit of a logistical challenge. Um, can you talk about our other TPO agonists, uh, that actually come, uh, orally? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
the um, L-Trome Bopag, uh, which is dosed at 50 milligrams once daily by mouth, um, is, is the first one I'm going to mention. So this one can also be titrated. Um, it's also done by platelet response, and it's typically uh, two-week intervals. It could be adjusted up or down by 12.5 to 25 milligrams per day, similar kind of to the uh, romiplostum. Uh, the maximum dose of that agent is 75 milligrams per day. Uh, it is important to mention, um, especially for pharmacists, that this agent um, it has dose adjustments um, for hepatic impairment because it's extensively hepatically metabolized. And there's some information about um, uh, race and ethnicity actually affecting dose. So there is labeling that for patients who are of East or Southeast Asian ancestry, that the dose needs to be decreased because we know that the exposure is 50 to 55% higher. And then there's some conflicting evidence for patients identifying as Black in studies. So one study showed that there was approximately 40% higher exposure in, in those patients, but then three additional studies found that it was similar between the races. So right now there's no product limiting uh, labeling that's reflected from that data. Uh, also important to note with that agent that absorption is impaired by um, polyvalent cations. So like calcium containing foods and other drugs like dairy products and things like that. Um, then uh, avatrombopag, that one is dosed initially at 20 milligrams once daily by mouth. And, and unlike the other agents, this drug is adjusted based on defined dose levels. So when you look up the recommendation, um, interesting, the initial dose is actually defined as a level four, and you can go all the way down to a level one, which is actually only dosing 20 milligrams once a week, all the way up to a level six, which is the maximum dose of 40 milligram per day. And that's all based on, on platelet count. That medication does have significant drug interactions um, with inhibitors or inducers of the CYP2C9 and the CYP3A4, uh, requiring avoidance or dose frequency adjustments. So pharmacists really do need to pay close attention to those interactions and modify therapy if needed. Um, this drug doesn't have the same interactions with the food or the cations. Thank you very much for that excellent overview of our TPO agonists. Um, a lot of really great info on, on pharmacist considerations. Um, a couple other things I want you to touch on are the safety concerns that pharmacists should be aware of, aware of with these agents. Yeah, so as a class effect, um, bone... Bone marrow fibrosis appears to be something we need to worry about. It also appears to be reversible uh, upon drug discontinuation. Also, um, thrombosis, both arterial and venous, um, looks like uh, studies show that it's similar to placebo. And if you remember, I mentioned earlier that this patient population in general has a higher incidence of um, having thrombosis in comparison to the general population. And that's probably about um, double. There's uh, also drug-specific safety concerns that pharmacists should be aware of. So for the uh, romiplostin, adverse effects that occur in greater than 10% of patients, I'm going to list those. Um, Dermatologic, so things like rash and hives, that, that seems to be more common in children than adults, um, as well as gastrointestinal effects seems to be more common in children than adults. There's also central nervous system effects like dizziness, headache, and, it's, and insomnia, arthralgias, myalgias, limb pain, oral pharyngeal pain, um, that particular side effect, um, again, more common in children than adults. 
And then infections and fever, um, probably not surprising, just, you know, always these things are more common in children than adults, but that one is, is also seen in that patient population more. Uh, there's some data from um, M MDS or myodysplastic syndrome where we may actually see progression of that disease to acute um, uh, myeloid leukemia or AML. Um, that was observed in clinical trials in that population, and that's actually not a recommendation for that agent at this time, but important to mention. In terms of L-trompopag, um, abnormal hepatic function tests um, occurring up to 11% of adults have been observed. We also see dermatologic gastrointestinal arthralgias, myalgias, and infections, um, like we saw with the romiplostum, but we're not seeing the CNS effects. And liver function tests, including ALT, AST, and bilirubin, needs to be monitored at baseline every two weeks uh, during dose titration, and then monthly after a stable dose is achieved. Uh, next, moving on to the um, avotrombopeg. Uh, this, this drug has unique adverse effects related to hypersensitivity reaction that have been noted in post-marketing reports, um, including patients describing a choking sensation, facial swelling, pharyngeal uh, edema, and swollen tongue. So um, important to look out for things like that. Appreciate the excellent overview of the TPO agonists. Um, so this is for patients with um, persistent or chronic ITP. And now there are a couple other agents that are used in this setting. Um, what other agents do you use in your practice for maintenance therapy in a patient with ITP? So rituximab, I mentioned earlier, um, is, is a drug that has a role here. So now we're kind of talking about our chronic patients versus the um, newly diagnosed patient earlier. So if we remember, this is a monoclonal antibody directed against the CD20 antigen and the surface of the B lymphocytes. Um, ultimately, that re results in the destruction of those B lymphocytes. So um, this agent is recommended by the ASH uh, below the TPOAs for many of the things that you mentioned earlier, right, around, you know, vaccinations and things. Um, but it is recommended over splenectomy. Um, and they, this set of guidelines does say this is based on a very low certainty of evidence. But if I had to guess, it's, again, because you can't put that spleen back, right? Um, there doesn't appear to be, um, you know, any really good body of evidence since there's no randomized controlled trials directly comparing those treatments. Um, rituximab does have a response rate at one month of approximately 62.1% versus um, the, the uh, TPO RAs at 65.7% and splenectomy um, at 86.7%, which, which is good, but comes with all of the um, safety concerns of, of splenectomy, such as infection, thrombosis complications, complications from surgery. Um, and really, that's probably the justification for why rituximab should be used over splenectomy. In terms of dosing, um, there's really, you know, as I mentioned, I don't know that it's well define what the optimal dose of rituximab is for this patient population, but we do know that drug is used um, at 375 milligrams uh, per meter squared once weekly for four doses by IV infusion. Um, those black box warnings for fatal infusion reactions exist, um, also severe mucotaneous reactions, HBV reactivation, so screening prior to administration is required. Um, and then potentially progressive uh, multifocal leukoencephalopathy. 
um, as a you know very severe adverse effect. In terms of studies from the ITP population, um, people seem to tolerate this medication relatively well with um, you know mild to moderate um, incidence of infection. Uh, but pharmacists really should be aware that the drug does have a wide range of possible adverse effects, many of which I mentioned earlier, some very serious, um, including cardiovascular, dermatologic, GI, liver, CNS, and those allergic type reactions. Uh, finally, there's a newer agent that was approved by the FDA in, in April 2018 for the treatment of chronic ITP. Um, this medication is fostamatinib. Um, I think I got that right. And um, <laughs> it's it's a unique uh, mechanism of action. So it's classified as a spleen tyrosine kinase or SYK inhibitor. Um, this SYK affects cellular proliferation, differentiation, survival, immune regulation, and plays a role in phagocytosis and auto antibody production. So this medication works by modulating the immune system. Uh, the majority of the data for, um, for this agent comes from two phase three studies where most, most patients receive the drug as either third or fourth line therapy. And that is how the um, FDA has approved it at this time. Um, and then in a pooled analysis, 43%, so 43 out of 101 of those receiving um, the fostamatinib uh, achieved an overall response, um, which they defined as any platelet count greater than um, 50,000 uh, in the first 12 weeks as compared with 14% of those in the placebo arm. So I want to talk a little bit more about uh, fostamatinib, just because it is uh, probably the newest agent for for ITP, and and it's kind of interesting because you're actually trying to get at the underlying disease biology here and reducing antibody production and and um, disrupting those those B cells, right? Uh, whereas our TPO agonists, uh, which are used in the second line, don't really affect the underlying disease biology. I think you said it perfectly earlier. They just kind of like you know, churn out more platelets. Um, and so I, I guess the question that I have is, um, because you mentioned fosamatinib is is being used in third or fourth line settings. Um, do we have any data of pushing fosamatinib up uh, to the second line where our TPO agonists are currently being used? Yeah, so there's a, there actually is a little bit of data. Um, it's in a small number of patients. So there's a post hoc analysis that was published um, from those phase three trials that I mentioned, and it, it pulls the report, pulls the results from 32 patients who actually wound up receiving um, the fosamatinib as second line therapy. Um, this was a small group and they did have a 94% response um, in that particular second line patients versus a 63 response for the third or fourth um, line patients. So they were kind of comparing it. And the hypothesis was that earlier use of the SYK in inhibitor may actually decrease disease progression. I think it's difficult to know for sure without further studies, um, whether we're just observing sort of a natural progression of this disease where the longer you've had it, the, long, the harder it is to manage, or whether or not the, the drug interrupts the pathophysiology. So this is going to be an interesting drug to keep an eye on. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think uh, our pharmacists, um, whether they use it in the second line, uh, which you just outlined, or via its FDA approved indication in the third or, or later lines, I think we're going to have to uh, get to know this drug a little bit because unfortunately, some of our patients do progress into the third or fourth line. And so um, how is fosamatinib dosed? And, and sh- what, what other considerations should our pharmacists be aware of? Yeah, so one of the nice things about this agent, it is oral, so it doesn't have the same administration challenges as some other ones. Um, It's initially dosed at 100 milligrams twice daily, and then after one month, the dose can be increased to 150 milligrams twice daily. Um, There are a number of side effects that we have to keep an eye out for, um, and then recommendations for dose adjustments that come with those side effects. So pharmacists should keep an eye out for liver toxicity, and AST and ALT must be monitored at baseline and at least monthly, um, more often if there's any evidence of liver injury. And then other important adverse effects include hypertension. So the product labeling does not recommend at this time discontinuing the the agent in the absence of a hypertensive crisis, but rather an evidence-based management of hypertension like you you would normally. Uh, Blood pressure should be monitored at baseline and every two weeks during dose titration and then monthly thereafter. Um, Diarrhea is also a big one. So approximately a third of patients will report diarrhea and neutropenia. So approximately 28% of patients um, may require dose reduction or temporary interruption of therapy. Uh, Patients need to be warned about the potential for diarrhea and the CBC should be monitored at least monthly. And then interactions with strong um, CYP3A4 inhibitors do exist, which can increase the toxicity of, of the medication. So pharmacists should need to pay special attention to those. That was such a great uh, overview of all the pharmacologic agents that we have for for ITP. Dr. Cherneski, you're clearly very heavily involved with patients in the treatment and the management of ITP. Um, What roles do you see pharmacists play in the management of patients with ITP? It depends on the practice setting. Um, Pharmacists can definitely play different roles from diagnosis to chronic management. Now, at the point of diagnosis, and we've mentioned this a couple of times, that um, patient's medication list really needs to be evaluated, especially um, because we know the diagnosis is one of exclusion. I think, you know, next in terms of coming up with a, a patient-centered treatment plan and in collaboration with the other members of the team is important. So, you know, considering things like patient preference, um, remember a lot of these drugs have um uh, require administration in a healthcare setting versus at home, and some are oral versus sub-Q. So, so that's going to be important to consider preference there. Also, comorbidities, um, especially those that patients have that might increase their bleeding risk. And then the adverse effect profiles and the drug-drug interactions of, of each individual agent. Pharmacists can also play an important role in monitoring the labs um, and administration adherence counseling and assisting with uh, patient access to the medications. And then finally, um, you know, there's a lot that's unknown still about this disease state, especially in terms of the optimal management and the place and therapy of the various new agents. So I think pharmacists can really play a role in in future research, Um, you know, drugs like Fasta, uh, matinib, um, they're oral, offering convenience, but they're currently reserved for patients who have failed other therapies. So, you know, is there a role for those earlier in treatment? I think that, you know, there's there's um, research to be done there. 
And then the order of other drug choices uh, may impact whether or not somebody has an early spontaneous remission versus going on to develop, you know, chronic ITP that lasts longer. So I want to thank you for uh, entertaining all my questions today. And I have one final question and I want you to give me uh, your elevator pitch for ITP. What do you think is uh, the single most important takeaway uh, that our listeners, our pharmacist listeners should know? Well, I think that people just need to remember this is extremely complex disease. Um, Initial management, like many other autoimmune diseases, does involve corticosteroids, ideally, you know, oral and and short course. Um, For those patients who do wind up having a longer course of the disease, we can manage them with drugs that either target the platelet count, like our TPORAs, or modulate the immune system, like the uh, fostamatinib. Some patients may ultimately wind up needing a splenectomy and pharmacists do play important roles in ensuring that those patients receive their proper vaccinations. Uh, But I think the good news is is the five-year mark, um, about 85% of patients will uh, wind up in remission. Yeah, that's so helpful. And um, I want to thank you again, Dr. Chernesky, for sharing your expertise uh, on ITP. Uh, It's a disease state with a lot of gray area, gray area in diagnosis, gray area in the treatment, and not a whole lot of data to drive decision making. Um, And so we really rely on experts like yourselves uh, to teach all of us uh, how we should be diagnosing and and managing ITP. So again, I want to thank you uh, for, for sharing your expertise with us. Absolutely. It was a a wonderful time. And with that, I want to thank the audience as well for listening in today. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message.